0: Hello and uh, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, I'm your host again as always uh, Ian Lewins, one of the paediatric emergency medicine consultants based in Derby in the UK and it's my very very great pleasure to be joined today um, by Dr Amy Plint uh, who's a paediatric emergency medicine uh, physician based in the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario and is also the Faculty Medicine Research Chair in Paediatric Emergency Medicine at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Good morning Amy, how are you today?
1: I'm good. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Uh, well, it's
0: very kind of you to come and join us. Um, and we asked you on the show to, to sort of discuss a paper that you, you've been involved in that was very, very recently published as an open access paper in uh, BMJ Quality and Safety. Um, and the title of the paper was Adverse Events in the Pediatric Emergency Department, a Pro- Prospective Cohort Study. Um, so starting off then how and why did you sort of get involved in this paper
1: well interestingly this is a I uh, was a newer area of research for me and I over the course of my clinical work I would we would have events or cases that we would discuss at our uh, morbidity and mortality rounds or cases you just like well that could have gone a little bit better and that started to get me interested in the idea of patient safety and adverse events in the emergency department and then my uh, a uh, co-investigator, um, our senior investigator on this project, Dr. Lisa Calder, um, was uh, an um, pedi- was an adult emergency physician at one of the hospitals in our city, and she did a similar study looking at this among adult patients. And so that uh, piqued my interest into looking at this more deeply in the pediatric setting.
0: Yeah, because as you say, there's sort of some data looking at adults in the the ed there's data looking at children who admitted but but not quite as much data as you'd expect for children simply in the ed
1: no almost nothing actually
0: um the things the things i took away from this and we'll we'll discuss it in, in further but the two things i took away from this were one wow your research assistants work incredibly hard because their <laughs> are amazing mm-hmm. um, and two actually what seems like a very very simple idea when you sit and read and unpick more and more of this, actually think, gosh, this is actually remarkably complicated and difficult to to tease out, isn't it?
1: Yes, very much so. Very
0: much, many layers. Um. So, thinking about the paper, then, what were kind of the the group's main aims? What were you trying to show and look at?
1: Well. First, we just wanted to understand how commonly adverse events related to care that children received in the emergency department occurred, because there was no estimates for that. You know, as you mentioned, there's many studies in um, there's admitted patients uh, studies, but no one had actually looked at kids and most kids don't get admitted to hospital. In fact, in Canada, they're most likely to come to the emergency department and probably only about 7% of them will even get admitted from there. So our goal was to just actually understand, first of all, how common these adverse events were, and then try to tease down more about how many of them were preventable, were there certain types of adverse events that were more common, were there diagnostic issues, management issues, was it procedural events, and finally, were there any kids, any particular factors that we could identify that made children at higher risk for adverse events? Those are my goals.
0: One of the, the tricky things to start off with is actually saying what do we mean by an adverse event? Exactly. So how how did your group go about sort of trying to define that?
1: So we took a broad patient-oriented perspective as to what an adverse event is. So, you know, an adverse event is um uh an um sorry here an adverse event is um an injury or a less than ideal outcome. Related to care provided in the emergence, related to care the patient received, uh, rather than related to the illness per se. And many hospital studies have focused on the need to have an intervention for a patient to have an adverse event. But we took a broader, um, a broader uh, perspective that you didn't necessarily need to have an in- in intervention. But if you were a patient and you had three or four more days of symptoms, or had to have repetitive visits to a hospital or a healthcare provider. To have your uh, correct diagnosis and correct treatment, in fact, that was an adverse event. And I guess I had actually said, you know, we define them as an injury, but really it should be unintended harm to the patient um, because an injury has certain uh, different connotations, but an unintended harm to the patient related to the healthcare provided rather than their underlying condition.
0: So those are kind of your, your, your primary outcomes and mm-hmm. your secondary outcomes. Um, So how did you kind of go about deciding who you're going to enroll and how you enrolled them?
1: Well, we took a very, um, I would say, uh, hopeful approach in that we decided to try to recruit every single patient that presented to the emergency department on the day that we had study shifts. And what we did is we chose 28 shifts over the course of a one year period, and we selected days, evening nights, weekends, weekdays. And then we had research assistants in the emergency department, who approached every family that we could as they came into the department. Now, some children were obviously much too sick to be approached. So those children who um, were in a life-threatening situation or perhaps were in severe mental distress, we wouldn't have approached those families, but our goal was to approach every patient and ask them if they would be interested in participating in the study. We then collected baseline data about those patients, um, collected details about their visit in the emergency department, Um, what their uh, disposition was, and what treatments they were sent home on. Um, After that, we then called all the families uh, at at least once in a three-week period, but we tried once a week for three weeks. And when we would call them, we would ask them, you know, how are your symptoms? Have they resolved? Have you needed any new care? Um, Have you had any new diagnoses? And we also asked the families directly whether they thought there had been any things that had happened during the course of their care that they were concerned about. We asked explicitly were there any concerns about communications or procedural complications, things like that. Then for families that identified uh, these events, so worsening symptoms, for example, and need to visit a physician again, we considered these a flagged outcome, and we went to do a next step on those children. But I'm going to step back for a minute and just say what we did for the kids that were admitted to hospital, because clearly some of the children we enrolled were admitted. So if the children were admitted to the hospital, we looked through their hospital records using something called a trigger tool. We use the Canadian Pediatric Trigger Tool, which is a validated tool where you look for certain events in the patient's record. For example, the need for a transfusion or transfer, perhaps to a higher level of care, so from the ward to the ICU and unplanned surgery. And we would call these triggers. So, if you had a trigger, that meant you were also at risk of an adverse event. So, every patient who had a flag, so a family identified an event but related, and any patient admitted who had a trigger, we then undertook something called creating a narrative summary. And this was quite uh, an extensive work where an experienced nurse uh, took the chart and created a summary. Of the experience. So a summary of their experience in the emergency department with lots of details, summary of what came out of a telephone call, um, if they'd been admitted to hospital, those sorts of things. And then those summaries were available to three physicians. Three physicians then read those summaries unaware of the patient's name or who the treating physician was and then they had to look through the cases and decide whether in their mind um, the events that were described could be adverse events. And the way we determined that was if you said that there was a greater than 50-50 chance that the outcome that the patient described was related to the health care received rather than the illness, um, and then two of the three physicians said that, that was considered an adverse event.
0: And that's, that's uh, in many ways, that's that's a really tricky bit, isn't it, is yeah. deciding... And, and it was interesting. Do I, do I think this is an adverse event versus whether you would think this is an adverse event? Isn't it?
1: And that's why we chose two out of three uh, reviewers. Um, we also did something else where, if one reviewer felt very strongly this was an adverse event, so we call that a score of five out of six. But the other reviewers. Uh, felt that it was uh, like not an adverse event we actually mm. had a discussion of the case and those were very interesting because it let the person who felt that there had been an issue um, speak about it and then we had a chance to rescore our scores to determine whether or not perhaps one of us had just overlooked something or perhaps one of us had a very different perception of the care We did train all the physicians. Dr. Calder, as I mentioned, the senior author on this, is a very experienced um, patient safety researcher. And all three physicians, we had uh, a detailed training session that involved both didactic lectures and then actual case discussions. We all practiced independently scoring a series of cases, then coming together to talk to them again. And what was very interesting in in this process, because I reviewed every single one of these cases as well, is putting yourself in the mindset of recognizing things truly from the patient perspective, but also critically thinking about the way we provide care. So, for example, perhaps you miss something on an x-ray, a fracture or something, the patient goes home. You call them back the next day when it's read correctly and they have to come and put their cast on. And, you know, Perhaps they've only had an extra day of symptoms and they've only had to come back and you caught it through your quality safety mechanisms. Well, that's great. But in an ideal setting, the patient wouldn't have suffered an extra day. They wouldn't have had to come back. And perhaps you'd have real-time radiology reading. So sort of putting yourself in the mindset of what would be the ideal situation, maybe not just what you're able to provide.
0: And it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the, you know, the perception of physicians of an adverse event versus maybe the, the child or the parent, maybe they'd have potentially different perceptions as well.
1: Yes. and I it, No, you're very right. It was very much a learning process for all of the reviewers to really put ourselves sort of outside of the, oh, well, nothing really bad happened to the patient, mm-hmm. the mindset, and really try to critically look at were the, were the events that happened, was there a chance to do something better? And I think that was sort of the mindset to think about. And did the patient, in fact, suffer some degree of unintended harm? didn't have to be severe, but some event of unintended harm.
0: Yeah. And I don't know if you, you can recall, but sort of looking back, was there largely reasonable agreement between all three reviewers? Yes, yes. adverse events?
1: Yes, there was. There was. As I said, two or three of us had to agree. And then whether or not when there was sometimes this sort of quite striking differences in the the scoring, having a chance to discuss it usually brought us to the same point.
0: And I think one of the things that that I found really helpful in this paper was um, there's a big box, uh, sort of several pages in, which gives examples of the sorts of adverse events that that you that you said this is an adverse event and this is not an adverse event, and actually that made it much in my mind much easier to understand, I guess.
1: Yes, yes, I, I, it's interesting. As we scored through, I kept these these sort of categories in in our in our heads all as all as we went through as to where could this possibly fit. Um, and was there a chance to have done better
0: yeah Mm -hmm. um you spoke um and the the, the group took this sort of a cut off of kind of three weeks Mm -hmm. after presentation um how did you arrive on that sort of allowing Mm -hmm. three weeks
1: well we chose um we chose three weeks because research um that had been done in the adult emergency department showed that the vast majority of adverse events had happened by three weeks. Um, so we felt that it was reasonable to go several weeks out. We did find in the end that most of the adverse events were in that first few days after ED care, but some were later. Um, and then I'm, I'm glad that we did go farther out because it gave us a chance to sometimes look at those cases where patients have presented back to your emergency department three or four times, And then when you look through the whole path, you can see that, in fact, right from the beginning, perhaps there was some level of sort of diagnostic anchoring or something that contributed, where if we'd only followed out to a week, we would have missed some of those uh, events.
0: Yeah. Um, The other bit that sort of just popped into my mind when I was reading through this was um, for for families where there were significant language barriers, Mm -hmm. um, they were sort of excluded from this study. Um, yes i mean uh, because i guess potentially this is a group where they're even more at risk of adverse events aren't they
1: Uh, absolutely now interestingly in our study population very few people were excluded it was about five percent we're a bilingual um city french and english um so we had those two languages and the vast majority of our population do speak well enough but yes for sure i in an ideal situation we would have had all comers particularly those with language barriers people who were new immigrants and still struggling with the language because you do worry about them being at higher risk but unfortunately i couldn't delve down in that in this study
0: sure um so thinking about your research your, your, you you've done this bit where you've looked at the adverse events mm-hmm. there's then even more tricky bit i guess of thinking about preventability isn't there mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. Uh, and that was sort of with one one person reviewing these and deciding on preventability mm-hmm. did you participate in it and how easy was that to do
1: well yes well, i did participate in it it was me that did all the vulnerabilities uh, <laughs> going with discussion with uh, dr calder again as i mentioned um and it was it was um tricky some the the good thing about the way we did this is that basically our uh, research nurse when she created the summaries almost copied word for word a lot of the events the the description in the emergency department so that lets you sort of look at it with a, a, an, an eye of what exactly the physician knew at that point and was able to record um, and of course you have some hindsight bias because you know yeah. what happened to the patient um, but we tried to decide whether the treatment would have been considered within the standards of what we would have um, anticipated um, in terms of determining preventability. And some of the things would be, for example, let's say the child had an intravenous placed. Um, the IV, there's no documentation that anybody had looked at it for five hours. And in our hospital, mm-hmm. it's supposed to be a once a hour um, check and the child had a significant interstitial IV with a big swollen puffy arm, you know, it resolved, they had no long-term issues. But we would have considered that a preventable adverse event because the standard of care would have been to be checking it every hour. And you'll notice in the example box that I give in the paper, I do talk about sort of an interstitial IV that was checked at an hour and was found to be interstitial. So for that, we would have considered that an adverse event. But a non-preventable one, we followed within the standards. You know, nothing had been ringing off. There hadn't been concerns raised. But a child who's sitting in your emergency department for five hours and it appears that no one has checked their IV and they had an interstitial IV, we would consider that a preventable adverse event. Yeah. So it would be that sort of, we'd look at what would be the accepted standards, um, one that we would aim to hold.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. When
0: you... Uh... Looking at these mm-hmm. these narrative things, um, one question I had was, was the sort of grade of the, the physician or the, the nurse practitioner seeing the child documented? And, and was that something well, that you were interested in looking at? Yes,
1: we did look at that. Who was the, um, the first uh, level of the first um, uh, physician seeing the patient? And interestingly, just because of the way our system works, usually the first person seeing the physician patient was actually a staff physician rather than a learner Um, just our learners uh, here in Canada I think it's a bit different than in the UK we have people who are just out of med school in their first few months of residency Um, so we also have people who are much more senior obviously four years in but often as a result those people are seeing less patients than the staff physicians. So you were more likely to have an adverse event. In fact, if you've seen a staff physician first, um, which I thought was an interesting finding. And I think part of that, I think in part, is likely that we just saw more patients um, and that Mm. the kids that the staff physicians see are more likely to be sick or sicker and thus at higher risk of an adverse event just in that basis alone. Um, But yes, I did find that to be an interesting finding.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the setup of the study, um, and that's how you went about it. What did you find? What were, you, were your main sort of results? Well,
1: we overall, it was just a small proportion of children that had an adverse event. Um, about 2.5% uh, uh, of patients we suffered an adverse event related to care in the ED within three weeks. However, the vast majority of those were deemed to be uh, preventable, almost uh, 88%. Um, we found that the most common types were management and uh, diagnostic issues, and then yeah. optimal follow-up was the most uh, was the next uh, category.
0: So, two point five percent of you, so, you, I think you recruited sort of just over thirteen hundred patients.
1: Okay, we so follow-up on thirteen hundred,
0: yeah. Yeah, so so two point five percent. Did well- that. Like you were slightly lower than you expected, maybe was
1: well, lower than I expected. I mean, when you look at it, it's about one in forty patients, so it's not nothing. It was lower than I expected. the The vast majority were minor adverse events, with you know less than one day of symptoms or a couple of days of symptoms. We had only two what I would consider serious um, adverse events um, with uh, non permanent uh, disability. Um, So it was lower than I had expected, I think, especially compared to the adult studies that suggest about 5% or so in the adult emergency Mm -hmm. department. I feel that that likely reflects uh, several scenarios. One is certainly in the pediatric emergency departments across Canada, we're having an increasing influx of lower acuity patients. So um, kids who have just, you know, had a fever for a couple of days or runny noses or cold yeah. symptoms, at least at that time. And so I think kids are less quick than adults. They have less complicated illnesses. So as we have less um, things that we can miss, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. like and, um, you know, it's sort of a bit easier to to tune in on it when you have an otherwise healthy child. I think when you have you know sicker adult patients with multiple comorbidities, that that becomes a, a different patient population. Um, I like to think that overall, obviously we provide safe care, that's our goal, but I think there's definitely places for yeah, improvement. And I think the other issue to note is that even though the proportion of patients who had adverse events were low, that those patients needed often to seek future care, both in the emergency department or with their family physicians. So it has not an, an uh, un uh, not a minor burden, I think, on families, that if they have to sort of repeatedly visit physicians over several days. Yeah.
0: And it's interesting that although, the, as you say, the numbers are low, mm-hmm. in, in your view, in the view of this, the study, actually, mm-hmm. the, the vast majority were preventable
1: yes absolutely they were preventable um i can talk to you a little bit about some of the themes that i i noticed in what made them uh preventable
0: yeah absolutely
1: so one of the things that that i noticed was that uh around radiology reports so for example a patient would come in they would be discharged home with a diagnosis of maybe an upper respiratory tract infection. They've had a chest X-ray, and uh, the radiologist reads it as possible well, early pneumonia. Um, nobody follows up with the patient. Two days later, they show up, and they're quite a bit sicker with their pneumonia. Um, sort of this, this a little bit of almost oh, that's just the radiologist overcalling <laughs> a little bit. You could sort of see that that sense. Um, as definitely one issue, and I would say for me the take-home message is I actually pay much more attention to the subtleties that the radiologist mentions in their report. Um, the other uh, issue I would say where we could improve is our reading of bony X-rays for fractures mm-hmm. and injuries, and then the other uh, group is the sort of idea of diagnostic anchoring, and you can see that as you read through the charts, that there's one thing that the physician sort of reads and says, oh, thanks. And oh, this must be it. And despite there being other things documented that sort of don't go with that diagnosis, you can see that it feels like they're almost brushed away. And then the patient comes back a few days later. And, you know, again, people read, I guess, the last visit and they're like, oh, it was Mm -hmm. this. And they, they, they send the patient on their way. And then the third time and then the fourth time, or there's, a lack of probing of some of the history questions so for example the patient says well yes they felt a bit warm when they threw up and then it says you know patient had a fever but nowhere is there ever a fever documented but it becomes sort of throughout the chart that the patient was febrile but Mm -hmm. if you really probably dig down with the family yeah the kid was hot when they threw up very sweaty because they're uncomfortable but then five minutes later they were fine so you can sort of see this this um i don't know if it's a Rapidness, or you're just um, sort of trying to fit the presentation of the patient into one pattern, but definitely sometimes probing a little bit more in the history, taking a little less of uh, the sort of surface approach would be would things that I took home from this
0: yeah that's really interesting because mm-hmm. you know th- those are common themes that that we all sort of see and recognize when we look at sort of adverse events yeah. um. The other thought, thing I thought was really interesting was sort of identifying whether there were particular groups of children, types of children, types of presentations that seemed to lend themselves to, to the adverse events. And it, it was sort of the, the extremes of age of, of the yes. population that we see, wasn't it?
1: Yes, which I think is very interesting. And my own take on that, you know, this is a theory, is that younger children can't talk to you that, um, you know, a lot of it is uh, just looking at the child, getting the history from the parents, trying to use your clinical skills to the best to, to recognize what could be going on. But the upper extremes, I, I wondered if it's the setting of being pediatric emergency physicians where we're more comfortable dealing with younger children. And then as you get kids that are more closer and closer to the adult age that sometimes we get a little less comfortable with that age group and I also feel that at times we're so used to looking at vital signs with you know heart rates of 100 or something that you see that on the 17 year old and you're just like, oh they're just anxious yeah. so you sort of brush off some of the 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 vital signs that in that age group really are concerning. Um, and I would say that that's a bit of a theme to truly, Sit back and reflect upon the age of the patient, especially for the older patients and their vital signs. I mean, we obviously all look at vital signs as emergency physicians, but I would say that uh, tach- tachycardia was m- missed when you look back on patients um, that should have been a red flag
0: right oh, that's interesting because mm-hmm. uh, that, yeah. um, we we sort of in our department we get a lot of people who've come from adult emergency that come and do their pediatric placement who are always initially hugely panicked by these children who are sitting there looking lovely with a heart rate of 140 just accept that that's totally normal
1: only it goes the opposite way sometimes when you're Well, maybe not 140 but you know the, the good athlete you know the child who's very athletic probably has a resting heart rate of 55 and suddenly has 100 in your department that's that's concerning the
0: the, the other things I that that you sort of picked out as themes I thought that were really interesting as well was that um, children who'd presented, particularly with mental health issues, mm. seemed to be overly represented in these adverse event yeah. groups.
1: And Yes, and I think that um, there's probably several reasons why that could be. There's been some interesting research uh, in adults that suggests that the physical exams of mental health patients is lacking. Um, so that may be... Uh, part of the reason, you know, a child prevents with, presents with a mental health presentation, you really just focus on their uh, mental health presentation, maybe a very superficial exam, but not a proper uh, detailed mm-hmm. exam. Um, I think that people perhaps may have more struggles interacting with those patients, maybe pulling out the information. They may have some biases that perhaps... Um, it's the child's mental health condition that's presenting where in fact maybe there is an underlying mental health condition you know for example the the mental health patient who's perhaps very well known to your emergency department who presents with abdominal pain and for some reason no one notices that the urine is actually very positive for a urinary tract infection and the patient is discharged with you know functional abdominal pain and that sort of um a situation where you think there's probably some level of an unconscious bias, perhaps, or, I mean, this is me um, uh, interpreting, but thinking about the realities of human nature. And when we're in the emergency department, with certain patient populations, I think it's really important to reflect that um, on those populations. And for some of the mental health patients, the adverse events could be at a mental health level. They're not all sort of at the sort of more physical level.
0: Event. Right. Yeah, that's 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 interesting, and I think very true, sort of universally. Um, uh, the the other bits when we're thinking about sort of demographics is, okay. is not just of the, the patient themselves, but also the you know how busy is the department? What's the, yeah. the the crowding effect? And also, does does the sort of is is the weekend effect exist? And you guys looked at that as well, didn't you? Yes,
1: and um, in fact, the the weekend was protective. Um, which was fascinating to me really? and I have no idea why because no one else has shown that um which is uh surprising to me uh we're just as busy on the weekends as weekdays um so I'm not sure if that's just a you know an artifact if we would find that in a bigger study or what why exactly that would be I found quite puzzling mm. but uh, we did find that uh, patients who presented by ambulance were probably at higher risk too, although we don't have a large number of those patients. I mean, that's not surprising. Those patients are sicker. They're more complicated.
0: Yeah. And and in terms of sort of the, the, the measures that you, as sort of surrogates of, of crowding, um, yeah. you didn't really demonstrate any difference. No,
1: we didn't. I, although crowding is a very... Difficult concept to capture, I find, especially mm. in the emergency department. You know, in the adult emergency departments, they say that, you know, it, it's it's not the number in your waiting room, it's the number awaiting inpatient beds. But in a yeah. pediatric setting, all those patients waiting in the waiting room and in the hall and sitting on stretchers actually is the bigger issue in a pediatric emergency department in our setting. And there is actually sort of a, I want to say a distraction of those patients that I, I believe do probably make people at um, higher risk. We were not able to capture that in this study, Um, but it is a single-centre study with uh, no, I would say, great validated measure of crowding in the emergency department. One thing that was suggested to me me to use as a measure of crowding is to actually ask the uh, charge nurse for the day, do you think the department is overcrowded? And to track that as a yes-no variable. Um, But we did not find that in this study. I think most... Physicians can tell tales of feeling the effects of crowding on their patient care, but we were not able to capture that in this study.
0: So in conclusion, in, in sort of summary, what, what do you think were the kind of take-home messages both for your department and, and the, for, for other departments that we could sort of take away and have a think about and try and put in quality improvement projects?
1: Well, I think the, the um, big one would be to make sure you have a quality improvement mechanism or quality assurance mechanism around your uh, radiology reports so that, I mean, it's not ideal for the patient to go home and have to come back and have a cast, but clearly that is an issue and we need to make sure you ha- we have a good mechanism that those reports are fed back and responded to in a timely manner. Um, we have a program at our hospital where you place your your report. We call it our wet, wet read into the uh, computer system for radiology. The radiologists, when they do all their readings, if there is a discrepancy, send an immediate uh, note to our follow up nurse, who is then notified and able to deal with that report. So I think that's a very important measure. I think most hospitals probably have that. Mm-hmm. I think as physicians, you know, we're pedi- I'm a pediatric emergency physician as are my colleagues, and we still miss things on x-rays. So I think it speaks to the importance of continuing medical education on that. I think that reflecting on um, especially the patient who's returning to the emergency department, um, to really step back and think again. Uh, So, for example, at our hospital, we have a flag that lights up on our tracking board when the patient is a return visit within a certain number of days. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's sort of like an extra clue to you to pay extra attention to that patient. Um, And I think those would be the main areas. And I guess to just be sure in amongst all of the you know, things where everybody's fine, to not use that as a reason to not fully explore a history with a patient in enough detail to make sure you're not missing something. I think those would be our my sort of take-home messages from this. I would say overall, we have very, you know, I think safe care Uh, the events that happen many are caught through our quality assurance mechanisms the vast majority of patients have very minor adverse events but they do happen and there are opportunities for improvement
0: yeah absolutely and I think that I guess another question that we could debate forever Mm -hmm. is what what is an acceptable level of uh, adverse events Mm -hmm. do we take as Zero, or we just sort of think that's completely unrealistic. And actually, two point five percent is not bad.
1: No, it's not bad. I was—I mean, I was happy as a person working in this department. I feel that you know we do we provide safe care, but I did see opportunities for improvement, um, and in, in areas that are not actually that difficult to improve upon, right? I mean, obviously, it's it perhaps a simplistic approach, but, um. Because patient safety is so multifactorial, but there are certain uh, things that we can, as physicians, think about, right? The repeat ED visit, read that x-ray report carefully, don't just sort of dismiss it out of hand as oh, overreading. Um, I think that those are important, important issues.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I thought this is a really interesting paper um, and I would encourage anybody to, to to go and read it. It's in the BMJ Quality and Safety and really importantly, it's open access. So anybody can go and have a look at it. Um, Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. That's been really interesting to talk through.
1: Thank you. It's been lovely to talk to you too.